Jesus, know him and believe. Well, that's the title that we have obviously given to the verse-by-verse study series of the Gospel of John that we have been in for a little while now. And today we are in chapter 6 of John's Gospel. And if you would join me there, I would be grateful. Grab that note page from your bulletin if you wouldn't mind along the way. We will also ask you to silence that cell phone in case that hasn't happened. And if you manage to get out of the house without your Bible this morning, just let us know and we can supply you with a copy of God's Word. One of the reasons, church family, that we teach on Sunday mornings straight through books of the Bible as our preferred way of really hearing from God in our corporate worship is because this approach encourages us to consider all that God has to say in a book of the Bible rather than just, you know, kind of hanging out with the parts that are especially uh, attracted to us, the ones we like the most, the stories that we're most fond of, um, the places that are easy for us to understand. This approach, I think, keeps us honest. It it avoids the trap of cherry-picking our favorite topics. It it keeps the pastor from getting on his little soapbox and doing his, his thing. We just take the book and we work through the book. But to make this our preferred approach inevitably means that we will come upon passages that can be challenging, they can be difficult, even controversial, as different interpretations on that particular passage are brought to the table. And such could be said of the portion of John chapter 6 that we're going to step into today. Challenging? Yeah, I think so. Difficult? Could be. Controversial, maybe, for some. Hopefully, as we encounter moments like this in the course of a series, hopefully we're able, uh, as a church family, to extend grace to one another if we don't all land on exactly the same place. Knowing that at the end of the day, really, our love for one another and the power of our united hearts in love for Jesus are really bigger maybe than our own personal take on an issue or a passage. We want to get to the truth. That's, that's important to do that, but at the same time to do that with grace towards one another. So let me pray uh, before we step into uh, this particular moment that we'll share out of John chapter 6. Let me pray for us. Father, it is a joy, it's an honor, it's a privilege to open your word as a part of our worship today and And we're excited about the fact that we get to spend time with you like this. You get to talk to us, and we come with hearts that hopefully are ready to receive from you. I would be honored, Lord, to simply be a mouthpiece for you to talk to your people today. I would love to be uh, just to stay out of the way while you go where you want to go. So we would just ask you by your spirit, Holy Spirit, you wrote this text, you wrote these words for us, so we'll ask you to bring them to life for us. Make them relevant, make them real, make them accurate. For your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for John 6. Amen and amen. So, church family, today we arrive at verses 35 and following of chapter 6. If you have been with us in the last couple of weeks, you know that Jesus earlier in this chapter performs an extraordinary miracle. 
He feeds some 15,000 hungry men, women, and children with just the contents of a little boy's picnic basket. The crowd, delighted by this miracle, are, are, are just so desirous of making Jesus their king on the heels of this miracle. And they want to make him king, if you recall, because they want him to do this miracle every single day. Remember this? Yeah, the people, we quickly discover, really don't care all that much to know who Jesus is or what he can mean uh, in their lives spiritually going forward, both now in this life but for the life to come. They have full bellies, and they want to keep it that way. And so they want to make Jesus their king so he will feed them. Well, the day after this great miracle, the crowd tracks Jesus down at the little town of Capernaum on the western shore of Lake Galilee, and they're hoping to get a second helping of bread and fish, followed then by a third and a fourth and so on. And in verse 26, Jesus addresses them at the synagogue, the local meeting house in the town of Capernaum. And here's what Jesus says. This is by way of background to get us where we're wanting to be today. Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the bread that perishes, but for the bread that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, Well, what must we do? to be doing the works of God. Now, again, this crowd really doesn't care all that much about who Jesus is or what he can mean for their lives. Just show us how we can make food like you make food. That'll be enough for us. And so they're, they're really stuck in this purely earthbound world of, of physical gratification, physical focus, Needs that move in that, that realm only, like so many in our culture today, stuck in a, a purely earthbound physical way of thinking and living. So the same thing that happens in the first century happens in the 21st century. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Forget about yesterday. Yesterday's gone. Today is a new day, and we're hungry again, and we need a new miracle. Verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. In other words, the crowd attempts to remind Jesus that Moses gave Israel, their forefathers, manna in the wilderness, and he didn't do it for a day. He did it for 40 years. 40 years, not just one day, not just one meal. Do another miracle. Feed us again. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you, present tense, right now, the true bread from heaven. God gave your forefathers manna that sustained them temporarily in the wilderness. It just sustained physical life 
verse 33. But the bread of God, he's talking about himself, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Again, they're stuck in their focus on purely physical things. They want, a, they want bread that will eliminate their physical hungry, their hunger. They're not hearing Jesus. They're not, they're not connecting with what he is saying about himself. And so finally, Jesus says, so that they really can't miss it anymore, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever comes to me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. Well, that verse 36, that's a hard verse. That's a sad verse. We have to know that when, when Jesus makes this statement in verse 36, it, 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 he did it with a broken heart. You have seen me. You've seen me. And yet you do not believe in me. All the evidence needed for you to believe in me as one whom God has sent is right here in front of you, but you will not have it. You don't want me. You only want food for your stomach. And so there's this deep sadness in those words. But now notice that Jesus refuses to dwell on that disappointing unbelief that he sees in the crowd He chooses instead to think upon other things that are going to lift up his heart. He chooses to think in this moment about salvation-related truth. Verse 37. You refuse to believe, but all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, church family, there is a lot going on in those four verses. We're going to come back to them in just a moment, but but let's keep going to continue to get a sense of what happens. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? In ways that really no one who is even marginally tuned in, can miss, Jesus says, I am the bread of God sent into the world to give life to the world. You you can have real life, true life, spiritual life, eternal life, if you make me that which will satisfy your soul, If if you will take me into your heart, into your life. But instead of gaining more clarity and more agreement from his audience, Jesus is actually getting more and more pushback, more and more resistance. This resistance in verse 41, John calls grumbling. And the reason for their grumbling is that what Jesus says just doesn't fit with what they think they know about Jesus. 
Hey, Jesus, we know your mom and dad, Joseph and Mary. You grew up in Nazareth. It's not very far from here. You can't be from heaven. You're as earthbound as the rest of us. That's what they say. And again, these cutting words of unbelief could have brought Jesus down, discouraged. But once again, he chooses to focus his thoughts on the truths that will keep that from happening. So in verse 43, Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This, and he's pointing to himself, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die i'm the living bread that came down from heaven could he be any more clear if anyone eats of this bread he will live forever and the bread that i will give for the life of the world is my flesh in other words that's a reference to the cross jesus is already telling us he's he's heading for the cross he's going to give his life the jews then disputed verse 52 among themselves saying how can this man Give us his flesh. Still locked into a purely physical mindset, they're not, they're not connecting with Jesus. And so once again, we see the pushback of the crowd. Their earlier grumbling now turns into disputing. And that's a word that John chooses because it means almost fighting. They're, they're kind of fighting mad. So do you think at this point that Jesus will now attempt to maybe de-escalate the situation? He'll, he'll try to reduce the, the high voltage that's emanating from the crowd. He'll, he'll try to calm things down. Do you think that's where Jesus is going to go? You know Jesus too, too well. Verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks, on, drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so obviously Jesus is now speaking metaphorically. He's not talking about literally eating him. Verse 55 for my flesh is true flesh and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I, have, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of, that our forefathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread, me, lives forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Who can listen to it? Well, as we know, most won't be able to listen to it. Most can't listen to it. Verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, Do you take offense at this? 
then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many say, you know, I've had enough of this Jesus guy. I'm out of here. This is a decisive moment in the story of our Lord. And this moment of abandonment we will take up next time uh, along with the rather disturbing words of verses 53 to 58, eating Jesus' flesh, drinking his blood. We're going to save all of that for next time. But I wanted you to know where all this is going, where it ultimately leads. So with the time that we have left, we want to go back now to some of the things that Jesus said earlier, back to some important truths that he shared to us about our salvation. And as I said at the beginning, some of this can be challenging and difficult and and, and even controversial because we're going to bump up now, church family, against an an age-old debate, a doctrinal debate that has to do with how a sinner is saved. It's a debate that has gone unresolved, literally, for centuries, and I don't anticipate that we're going, to, we're going to solve it today either, which is okay. It's okay. Simply put, the question at the heart of this debate is, did you choose God, and as a result, he was pleased to save you through Jesus, or did God choose you for salvation Because in your lostness and your sinful depravity, you were incapable of choosing him. That's the heart of it. Did you choose God or did God choose you? And what's the answer to that question, church? Both. Both. Yes, we've been here before, haven't we? The answer is yes. We are responsible to believe. To exercise faith in the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, we are responsible. And God sovereignly chose to enable you to believe in his son, otherwise you never would. Did you choose God or did God choose you? Yes. Your answer is yes. Scripture's answer is yes. Now, this large crowd is reticent to believe in Jesus in verse 36. Jesus says that. In verse 41, they're grumbling because Jesus is claiming that his true home is heaven and he's come down from God as the bread of life. In verse 52, they're deeply offended by his statement that he would give himself for the sake of the world. And then when Jesus alludes to his body and blood needing to be figuratively taken into your life by faith in verse 60 it's too much who can listen to that they say so by any normal standard of measure it would appear that jesus is going backwards in his efforts to win followers 
He's losing followers. He's not gaining them. He unveils one of his most beautiful and, and richly meaningful titles, the, the, the bread of life on the heels of this amazing miracle that he performs. And, and what's the result of that? People are leaving. And they're not leaving by ones and twos. They're leaving in droves. But does Jesus despair? Does he wring his hands and say, oh, man, what, what, what have I done now? How, how, do I, how do I get them back? How do I, how do I keep them from leaving? How do, I, how do I change their minds? What do I do? Is this Jesus? Man, not at all. What Jesus does, and this is so beautiful, he, he actually settles into the truth about how salvation works in a sinner's life. That's what he does in the midst of all of this unbelief. He settles into the truth about how salvation works. The absolute sovereignty of God in saving sinners is the basis for Jesus' confidence in the ultimate success of his mission. And it is in settling into this place that he finds a peace and a comfort despite the negative reactions that are swirling all around him. If we look again at verse 36, Jesus, top of the screen, says, You have seen me, yet you don't believe in me. You have all the evidence, but you refuse to, to believe. The people really weren't seeing Jesus. They're looking at him, but they're really not seeing him. They don't believe. They refuse as an act of their own will. It's their choice to not partake of Jesus as that living bread who would satisfy their soul. God's gift to them is being rejected. God's offer of the bread, his son to his people, they don't want him. And they're responsible for that. It's exactly what we read way back back in chapter 1 when we first started the series. In chapter 1, verse 11, do you remember what John says there? Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And now it's just playing itself out very, very vividly. So this is the way salvation looks from from man's side, from, from, from mankind's side, from the, the human side. God offers his son. We're responsible to, to see him and to believe in him, but most of us don't. Most don't see Jesus for who he really is. Most don't want the life that he offers. Does that then mean that the saving purposes of God are failing? Does that mean that, 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 that God's intent for Jesus to redeem a fallen humanity falls short? That it fails in some way? Absolutely not. And that is what Jesus rests upon and finds comfort in despite the unbelief that he is encountering. He leans repeatedly into God the Father's sovereign work of grace in a person's salvation. Jesus knows his Father will not let his ultimate saving purpose fail. So read again with me now, verses 37 to 40, and again verse 44, and again verse 65, with this perspective in mind. Jesus is running into salvation truth to shore up, to to just bring that comfort in the midst of an environment of great unbelief. All that the Father, what? Gives me. Will come to me. 
And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has, what? Given me. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that anyone, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, what? Draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 65, and Jesus said, This is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is what? Granted him by the Father. If you flip your note page over, there are in these verses, church family, no less than five powerful truths concerning God's sovereign work of grace in saving sinners. And they merit our time and attention here. And again, Jesus rests in these truths despite the unbelief that, is, that he's encountering. And the first truth that he turns into is this one. God gives to Jesus all he chooses to give. God gives to Jesus all whom he chooses to give. Jesus says, every sinner, all that the Father wants me to have, I'm going to have. I'm not worried. I'm not worried. He gifts them to me, verse 37, verse 39. He draws them to me, verse 44. He grants them to me, verse 65. These three words, gives and draws and grants, they, they point to God as the as really the ultimate determining agent in who comes to his son for salvation. And Jesus rests in that. He doesn't wait for a spiritually dead sinner to come to him. If he waited for the sinner to come to him, he'd wait a long time. Because they don't come. He waits for the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit to impart life to a spiritually dead heart to open spiritually blind eyes, to, to, to unstop spiritually deaf ears. In fact, Jesus even says this in verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Before we ever see Jesus as a compellingly desirable Savior that we want, the Father has as an act of sovereign grace gifted and drawn and granted us to Jesus. And Jesus found comfort in that truth that everyone who believes in him is really a love gift from the Father to him. That's cool. You, Christian, are a love gift from the Father to his Son. And this leads Jesus to rest in a second salvation truth. Because God is the one who gives the sinner to Jesus, they're going to come. They will come. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me, what's the next word? Will come to me. Not, not might come or, or they could come. They will come. 
In other words, the sovereign purpose of God in salvation will be realized. It has to happen because it is God who's making it happen and he never fails, right? Jesus does not say that because people come to him and believe in him as the bread of life, that the father is somehow moved to give them to his son. As if, the, as if the sinner is the defining agent, the deciding factor in salvation. And then God just gets on board. Those whom the Father gives to his Son come to his Son. He's the deciding agent. He secures their coming. He works their coming. He guarantees their coming. They're going to come. Because it's the Father who makes it happen. Hear the Lord. From Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Who is that? That's a sovereign God. Jesus found comfort in this truth about his father and he brings that into this moment of unbelief. Every sinner given, drawn, and granted will be there. Every single one of them. Jesus not worried. He's not worried. And then this moves Jesus into a third salvation truth because, because the father has given sinners to him, those given to him are going to be kept safe. By Jesus. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will what? Never cast out. Never. The giving and the coming are the Father's sovereign saving work. The keeping of the saved, that's Jesus' sovereign saving work. He keeps what the Father gives. Verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Whoever the Father gives to me, the Son says, I hold on to as a very precious treasure, and I never let it go. You know, times beyond number, someone has been given a gift from a loved one, uh, a dear friend, a family member, It's an irreplaceable, one-of-a-kind gift. Maybe you've received a gift like that from someone in your circle, and it's extremely precious to you. It's a treasure that you you would just hate to lose. It's that valuable to you. It's a gift. But then somehow the gift becomes lost. And that loss, when it happens and it's realized that it happened, man, that's devastating for the one who loses the gift. It's, it, it just crushes them because they can't recover the gift. It's gone. It's gone forever. They can't get it back. And, and it just leaves this ache in the heart. I would submit to you, church family, that Jesus never, ever knows what that feels like. Because all of the sinners that the Father gives to him, he never loses even one. That's what he says. Talk about security in your salvation. Are you secure today? Are you safe? Boy, are you safe. You know, when we get to John chapter 10, 
whenever that happens. Jesus will step into this very same truth, and he'll say it this way in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28. He'll say, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. The life we have in the Son is what kind of life? It's eternal life, isn't it? It's eternal life. It's not, it's not temporary life. It's eternal life. And verse 40 here says that too. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him has what? Eternal life. It can't be lost. It can't be stolen. It can't be taken away. Not only does the Father give His chosen ones to the Son so that they infallibly come to the Son, they remain eternally safe in the Son. I feel safe today. Do you? We should. Fourth, Jesus will raise us from the dead on the last day. We read that in verse 39 and again in verse 40. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. At the end of the age, I'm going to do it, Jesus says. Now, Jesus knows that death looks on the surface to everyone like, like, a, like a huge defeat, like a loss. It looks as though even for the Christian, at least though our souls might be saved, our bodies are lost. That's what death looks like. We may think Jesus loses nothing of all that the Father has given him, but it looks like at least he loses my body. And to that, Jesus says two times, makes it crystal clear, I will raise it up on the last day. So not even our bodies are going to be lost. So complete is our salvation. A new body perfectly suited to an eternity with our Savior in heaven is waiting for us. And I'll tell you, church family, I can't wait for that. How about you? Man, a new body? That's awesome. It's coming, and Jesus promises it here as an extension of our salvation. And then the fifth salvation truth that Jesus settles in here, into here that comforts him in the face of, of defiant unbelief is this. The unshakable foundation upon which salvation rests ultimately is the will of God. Do you believe that there is anything more sure in this universe than the sovereign will of God? Is there anything that's more sure than the will of God? No. There is nothing more certain in the universe than what God wills. Do you believe it? I hope you believe it. I hope you believe it. I hope you believe it because Jesus believes it. Verse 38, Jesus reminds himself of why he left the glories of heaven and stepped into human skin so that he could ultimately die for sinners and rise from the dead to give them life. Why did he do that? Verse 38, it's the will of the Father. It's the will of the Father. He's going to do that. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The Father willed it, and I'm here because he willed it. 
In verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Jesus is not going to fail to keep us because it is the sovereign will of the Father that we be kept. Right? And that will cannot fail. And again, we hear Jesus say in verse 40, For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. If God's sovereign will is that you come to Jesus, and you come to Jesus, that's not a temporary will. That's not a temporary thing. That is an eternal thing. It's eternal life. This is God's sovereign will for all who are saved by Him. Well, these salvation truths are where Jesus goes in the face of unbelief and grumbling and disputing amongst this crowd over who he's going to be for them. They want a king who will give them free food. Jesus says, I don't want any part of that. I want to be the savior in your life. I want to be the bread of life for you. Well, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven. I'm the living bread. For this crowd, their earthbound perceptions, their puny reasonings are rising up to resist what Jesus is trying to tell them. And what Jesus essentially says is this. You might as well stop grumbling. And disputing amongst yourselves because the perceptions and the reasonings of fallen human beings are never going to be the decisive reason that anyone comes to me. It's not on you. The decisive reason anyone comes to me is that my father gifts them to me. He draws them to me. He grants them to come. They come because he wills that they come. So you would do better to stop grumbling and start praying. Start praying that my sovereign father would change your heart and open your eyes and draw you to me. That's what you should do. And so Jesus wants to shake this crowd and us out of any thought of of, of self-reliant, self-determining, self-exalting, self-absorbed notions that we might have about how our salvation really works. For us living on this side of heaven, salvation truth will always hold attention. There will always be mystery in it. Are we personally responsible to choose Jesus and put our faith in him? Yes, we are. We are to choose Jesus. And at the same time, From what Jesus has told us today, we do not hold within ourselves and our fallen sinful nature that decisive impulse to come to Jesus in saving faith. Only the Father can give that to us. No one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. We desire, we choose, we come to Jesus because we want to come. But God's sovereign will and undeserved grace is behind it all, enabling us to want to come. Did you choose Jesus or did Jesus choose you? Yes. You chose Jesus and Jesus chose you. So, so church family, what should be the effect 
of such sovereign, saving truth upon us who have, who have put our faith in the living bread. What should the effect of that be on us? How should what Jesus has spoken to us today, how should that impact us? Well, it most certainly should move us to great humility, don't you think? Great humility. We did not provide the saving impulse that brought us to Jesus. That did not come from us. God did that. We came to faith in Jesus because of him. If it weren't for his gifting, his drawing, his granting mercy and grace, we would be utterly lost. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says, It is because of God the Father that we are in Christ Jesus. That's humbling, isn't it? We take no credit. We, we can't boast in any way about our salvation. And then, humbled, we're filled with thankfulness, right? Everything we have, especially our salvation, why, that's a gift. We ought to be thankful. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, It's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your doing. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that nobody boasts. How thankful we must be for, for sovereign grace. And then God's saving gra- sovereign grace, it gives us assurance, doesn't it? What assurance we have. He who drew us to himself loses none that he draws. Not even one. We're kept to the end of this life only to step into the life that has no end. Praise be to him. This is the great ground of our assurance. God gives us to Jesus and Jesus doesn't lose what God gives him. Romans chapter 8 verse 30 declares it like this. Those God predestines, he calls. Those he calls, he justifies. And those he justifies, he what? He glorifies. The Father finishes what he starts, and so does Jesus. Great assurance. And from this great salvation that we receive, we also get hope for the salvation of the people that we love who seem utterly beyond saving. And you have people in your life right now who, from, from everything you can tell, they're, they're just walled off to Jesus. They, they, they're not going to come. If the salvation of our family members or our friends is truly and decisively dependent on them and, and, and their fallen nature and maybe decades of sinful habits and addictions and, and unbelief, we would despair of them ever coming to faith if their salvation totally rested on them. But nothing is too hard for God. And so when God calls the dead, what do the dead do? They rise, and when God draws, they come. And when God grants, they accept. And when God gifts, Jesus receives. Oh, praise be to God. There is no one beyond the sovereign reach of a saving God. And then lastly there, because our salvation is a work of amazing sovereign grace, all glory goes to him goes to the Father. It goes to the Father. And that's why he saves the way he does. 
all glory belongs to him. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. It'll be our joy, brothers and sisters, to to praise and to glorify God the Father forever and ever as we look upon the wounds of our Savior and know that we are His gift to His Son. From that place, we will glorify the Father. Thank you for making me a gift for your Son. Don't deserve it, but I sure do glorify you for it. Now, as we wrap up, You might be asking yourself, so how can I know? How can I know if I am one of those gifts that God has given to his son? How can I know? How can I know that I've been drawn to Jesus and I've been granted to come to be kept from hell and raised to heaven, never to be lost by Jesus? How can I know that? Well, I would... I would submit to you that that is the easiest question in the answer in the world to answer. That's the easiest question to answer. In fact, the answer is really in John 6, verse 35. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If you come to Jesus in this way, In faith, believing that he took your sin to the cross, he died for it there, paid your debt for you, rose from the dead victorious over your sin, and you desire to be nourished and satisfied by the bread of life, if that's your heart, then you've been given to Jesus. You're God's gift to him. You never have to wonder about that. And if you've been given by the Father to his son, you can't be lost. You can't. You can't. Amen. And amen. Let's pray. Wow. What a feast this morning. Truths that Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, and Holy Spirit are, are, they're just so big. We feel so small in the face of these salvation truths. And, And we barely touch the surface of salvation truth. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for going into this place in this moment in John and taking us with you. If there be one in this room this morning who who has yet to decide who you will be in their life, may the things that you have shared today be that, that revealing moment where they come to realize I have been gifted to the Son because I believe these truths. I give my life to you, Lord Jesus. I believe you died for me. You were buried. You rose from the dead for me because I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. And I choose you today. I want you today. But I also understand you chose me. You want me. And you gifted me to your son. I believe it. I believe it. If that be you this morning, don't leave today without allowing us to to know that and to help you begin this journey with Jesus. 
for Heavenly Father, for all of us who who understand these truths and and try to get our heads and our hearts around them, may they just lead us to places of humility and thankfulness, deep assurance, great confidence in the fact that those that we love may yet be saved by you. And all glory, all glory be to you for being our saving God. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's stand together, church.